This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show. You're listening to 3CR. 2020 has been a hell of a year. We began with the bushfires and experienced the lockdown measures of COVID, unprecedented in Australia's modern memory. In climate change, we began to see real action and real catastrophe. Today, fires are still raging in California, very similar in intensity to those that we had here. In terms of action, we saw the price of renewables drastically decrease. A Biden presidency will mean $3 trillion will be made available for climate funds. And perhaps most importantly, investors started to acknowledge en masse the fossil fuel investment folly. It will take years for the dust to settle here. For this show, we will be looking forward at some of the most recent developments that are most likely to carry forward into Australia's future. We will be speaking with Zali Stegel, the ex-Olympic skier and Warringah Independent MP, who put forward the Climate Bill earlier this month in an attempt to bring Australia to net zero emissions by 2050. We will also be speaking with Renew Economy's editor, Giles Parkinson, about Australia's potential as a renewable energy superpower. Is this idea still relevant in post-COVID Australia? And we will also be speaking with Equity Generation Lawyers, partner David Barnan, who has been working on three major cases that could change how the courts consider climate law. David's most recent case that won worldwide attention was that of Mark McVeigh against $50 billion Superfund REST for not considering climate risks in their investment. Incredibly, REST settled out of court. We speak with David about this and other cases and what they could mean for climate law in this country. So please stay tuned. It's David up first. In 2018, 25-year-old Mark McVeigh sued his super fund in federal court. His case? Rest, his super manager, had failed to provide him with information about how it was managing the exposure of his money to the risks of climate change. This was a clear breach of both the Superannuations Industry Act and the Corporations Act. After two years of legal proceedings, the $57 billion fund agreed to settle just before the case went to court on November the 2nd. REST stated that climate change is a material, direct and current financial risk to to the superannuation fund and that REST, as a superannuation trustee, considers that it is important to actively identify and manage these issues. This case has received attention all around the world. We are joined by David Barnum, head of Equity Generation Lawyers, who is McVeigh's lawyer. David has two other cases. The first with Kata O'Donnell against the Commonwealth Government over climate risks and Sharma versus Environment Ministers, an attempt to stop the Vickery Extension Project. Thank you so much for making the time, David. You sound like you're very busy at the moment. Uh... I am certainly busy and I have a, uh, a small team who is very busy, but it's always a pleasure to talk. So thanks for having me. No, great, great. Thank you. Um, so just to kick us off, can you explain why a case like McVeigh's uh, is important, not just for super funds within Australia, but sort of pension funds worldwide? Absolutely. So 
in both those circumstances in Australia and, and global pension funds, the situation is that trustees are, are managing or looking after other people's money and sometimes for a very, very long time. So they have similar duties to the people um, whose money they look after. They, they, they need to act in their, in their interests and they need to act to, um, to a certain standard. So, so it can be concerning, especially for younger people like, like our client Mark, if their money isn't being managed appropriately and if climate change risks aren't being taken to, into account because these are, these are risks that are, um, are happening now and being felt in markets now as, um, as physical impacts hit and as, um, as the world transitions away from, from high carbon industries. But it's also important for... Um, for, for the longer term sustainability of the economy. So, so both here in Australia and around the world, um, it's, that case has received a lot of interest um, because it was the first case and, and only case of its type. Um, and can you just go into a little bit of detail about how um, climate risks are a direct threat to the um, stability or, 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 or reliability of a super fund? Yeah, sure. So super funds will have a lot of different categories of investments. Um, it will invest in, you know, Australian shares. So all these companies on the Australian stock market, uh, it will invest in, in international companies listed on other stock markets around the world. Typically, a super fund in Australia will have a portfolio of um, infrastructure investments or, or property investments. Um, so things like, like ports, um, you know, buildings and CBDs, uh, things like that. And, and also more, um, more defensive investments like, like Commonwealth bonds, for example. Yeah. And so across all of these categories, climate change presents uh, presents financial risks. Um, you know, the, the oft-cited um, risk of stranded assets mm -hmm. is, is, is quite, a, quite a good thing to get a handle on. And, um, and so that, that manifests in, in companies um, like, for example, coal companies that, that um, a super fund may invest in. And, um, and the idea that, that um, you know, the, the main reason that super funds exist is to make money and, and to make as much money as possible um, yeah on those investments for people's retirement. So, so yeah, it's, it, it's a problem. Right. Right. And uh, to my vastly limited knowledge, uh, the relevant section of the corporations act has not changed too much. Uh, and the risks of climate change have been abundantly clear for a long time. Why are cases like Mark's and Catter's appearing now? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Actually, it's a really good question. Um, there's, so the risks of climate change haven't really altered much. Um, the science hasn't really altered much. And, you know, unfortunately, everything that the science has foreshadowed in terms of risks is, is essentially coming true. Um, um, but there is a heightened awareness amongst financial institutions, um, amongst lawyers, uh, and, and we can see that by you know, public advices, um, by by eminent barristers in Australia that say corporations have 
and sorry, corporations and their directors have duties to consider climate change risks uh, on the company. Um, and so, so we're in a world where we're not not just the sort of the, the professional financial industry has more awareness around it, but also younger people are, are more willing to take action. Mm. And and so so we we have that dynamic. And also in Australia, we have a dynamic where certain sectors of of business and and government are really dragging their heels. So there's there's a lot um, potentially to be gained by legal action and and it should be a last resort and it often is. Um, so so when other things fail, people people will go to lawyers and see what they can do. Right, right. And and are you allowed to speak uh, about Mark's personal motivation for pursuing the case with you? Um, I mean, Mark, uh, I mean, I can in, in general terms. Um, yeah. Um, you know, I understand that Mark um, studied ecology and, and is, is now a, a professional ecologist. He, um, you know, he's, he's concerned about the natural environment, but also was interested in superannuation and, and interested in finding out about more. So, so when he was you know, 22, he went on Market Forces website which um, has some, some research around superannuation funds and, and how they deal with climate change. And, and Market Forces helped Mark to write to the rest to, to ask them what they were doing about climate change. So, so yeah, look, I mean, like as, as a younger person and, and someone who has um, studied the, the natural environment and, and issues around climate change, um, I, I think it's important to him. Right. Um, yeah, we've we've done shows on super um, here on the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show before. It's um, and Market Forces is such a great website. We'll we'll add that in the the show notes again. Um, so at, at the risk of flooding your inbox, uh, is anyone with REST or a similar super fund, uh, anyone of Mark's age or younger, able to pursue such a case? Any member can. So, so members have rights enshrined in law. Um, and so the first leg of the illegal action was, was Mark exercising his right to information from the trustee. Um, so the trustee is, is the entity that, that manages the fund. Um, and so under the law, he can get information that he, he needs to, to make a decision about how the fund is being managed there are also provisions that allow members like Mark to get information about the fund's investments. So, so anyone can, can write to their fund and ask them. And, and again, look, legal action is a last resort. So, so you can't just say, you can't just go straight to court. Um, you know, it's always best to, to engage with, um, with um, whoever you, you want the information from. Right. Um, and now a bit of, bit of a, a legal philosophy question. Um, how evolved is, is, the, is the current legislation to deal with climate risk and all its idiosyncrasies like um, existing over, over such a long time frame? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, we, we do see more legal action now by virtue of the recognition the recognition that climate change is a is a material financial risk 
and so the law operates to to protect investors and and superannuation fund members from from those risks and and it imposes duties on on trustees to to think about climate change when when they decide to invest um there are I mean, there's there's myriad issues. There's with respect to to government action, um, and specifically the the, the federal government, um, and the executive finds itself more and more isolated in its position on climate change. There's there's only so much the law can do. Um, so so in order to protect um, younger people, uh, it, it can be really difficult for for them to utilise. The, the law, um, and and we still see companies and investors hide behind very um, simplistic thinking about climate change and um, and very short term thinking okay. on climate change. But but we do. It is clear that it, that it is a current and major risk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you have another case, which is Cato O'Donnell's against the Commonwealth Government. Would you be able just to, to speak to that, please? Yeah, certainly. So, so Cato is an extraordinarily courageous young woman from the outskirts of Melbourne. Um, she, she's a law student. Um, Cato says that the law operates to, to make the Commonwealth disclosed to her the, the risks that climate change poses to those bonds. Um, and it's a really interesting case. There's, um, you know, there's a whole range of sort of risks um, sort of wrapped up in the, in the broad category of climate change that, that um, you know, can be posed to those investments. And that they include things like Australia's reputation, um, you know, reputation not just in international financial markets um, as, a, as a good manager of money, but also with respect to how it goes about managing climate change domestically and, you know, whether we have effective emissions reductions policies and strategies, as well as what we do on an international stage and whether we're dis disruptive or otherwise at, at um, climate change negotiations um, under, under the UN the, the, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. So, so it's it's a really important case that asks the government to reflect on on how it approaches climate change and and what sort of risks that poses to um, to to government bonds. Right, right. Um, and how about the 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 third case in this in this category, which is the Sharma versus uh, Environment Ministers. Yeah, so that's fascinating as well. And we have eight young people aged between 13 and 17 who have taken this case to the federal court against the Minister for the Environment. Um, now, people under 18 normally can't take legal action. Um, and so, so they've enlisted the help of a, an 85-year-old nun, um, Sister, Sister Bridge Arthur, who's their sort of helping them bring it. She's what's called a, a litigation guardian. Um, the, the claim is, is fascinating. It deals with an extension project in northern New South Wales, a, a coal mining project. And it says that when the minister 
makes her decision on on whether or not to approve that that project she she's bound by a duty um, that's owed to younger people so so these eight people specifically but also all people under the age of 18 because they will be disproportionately impacted by climate change they are they are vulnerable in 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 many senses including the fact that they can't exercise their um, you know political choice by voting and and so the claim says the the minister has this this duty um, where there's um, foreseeable impacts of climate change in the future to mm. to prevent those impacts and um, and the, the case seeks um, an injunction to to stop the minister approving the, the the coal mine on the basis of its of its climate impacts so it's it's a really it's it's a it's a really good attempt um, by by younger people to to hold people in positions of power um, accountable for for their decisions and and what what they allow. Right, um, I'm I'm picking up on some uh, notes of notes of passion in your voice. Um, so I'm really interested. Just fin- finally, um, just your uh, firm, so Equity Generation Lawyers, and your sort of commitment to, to cases involving climate change. Can I ask about your, your personal involvement there and, and sort of where, why you chose to pick up these cases? Um, yeah, sure. Look, I've, I've been very lucky um, to, to sort of be on a path where I've, I've been fortunate enough to, to study law and to study environmental science um, and to get um, good training both in non-government organisations um, who, who represent, you know, community, community groups, but also in, in law firms um, um, that do litigation. And so it seems, you know, for, for someone like me who has been lucky enough to have that opportunity, it seems pretty obvious that, that this, there's things wrong with the system and, and if you can figure out a way... To, to help people um, yeah. and help people change it. Um, look, it seems like a no-brainer that that's what, that's what someone like me should be doing. So, so you know, in, in in a sense, I'm I'm actually quite lucky. There there are a lot of boring lawyer jobs out there. Um, you know, they may be well paid, um, but um, I'm I'm lucky enough to to be able to um, to sort of align my work with. Um, with I guess my my knowledge and understanding about um, and and you know um, caution and and fear about what might happen in the future if um, if we don't act act quickly. Right. Oh, thank you so much for, for your time, David. I imagine you're you're very very uh, busy man at the moment. Not at all. Look, it's it's lovely to chat. Um, thank you for your interest, and um, yeah, look forward to um to speaking ag- again sometime. Yeah, we'll definitely be following um following those two remaining cases. Thanks so much, David. Thanks again, Kurt. Have a nice day. Bye. Bye. Hi, man's here from the Japarong Embassy. On October the twenty sixth, after two and a half years of defending sacred women's country. The embassy, family, friends and supporters were forcibly removed from country by Victoria Police. The Andrews State Government, alongside Major Roads Projects Victoria, 
have begun their violent attack to desecrate the sovereign lands of the Japarong to make way for the duplication of the Western Highway between Buangal and Ararat. There are many old growth trees, one significant tree in particular, a 350-year-old yellow box gum, the Directions tree. She's a placenta tree who holds the DNA of the Japarong ancestors. She was felled by a chainsaw at the hands of a government that is asking for a treaty with its first peoples. The embassy and its frontline protectors are calling out for your help. To find out more, including how to get to the embassy to help defend on the ground, visit the Japarong Heritage Protection Embassy's Facebook page. Educate yourself, donate to their chuff campaign, and spread the word. 3CR supports the Japarong Heritage Protection Embassy. No trees, no treaty. Uh, we are joined now by Giles Parkinson. Giles is the founder and editor of reneweconomy.com.au, the country's leading website for climate issues and renewable technologies. We have had Giles on the show before and we are speaking with him via a pre-recorded Zoom call. Giles, thanks so much for making the time. Uh, looking at renewables in Australia must be a very demanding profession at the moment. Look, it's an exciting time to be um, involved in this industry. It's actually been exciting for a while and it seems to be getting more exciting and it seems to be getting more intense because the transition, I think, is accelerating now as the, um, as the technology come, costs come down and everyone just sees the economic opportunity as well as the environmental imperative. Well, yes, yes. And um, looking, looking at that uh, from the perspective of Australia, uh, I'm, I'm interested in looking at the idea of Australia as a uh, renewable energy superpower. Um, could Australia, who is the largest exporter of coal and the second largest exporter of LNG after Qatar, possibly transform its economy uh, to become a renewable energy superpower? If you kind of look at the size of the exports now and all the infrastructure that's gone into it and those contracts, it just does seem sort of a bit daunting and almost impossible. But what we've discovered over the last couple of months, or what's become clear over the last couple of months, is that most of our major trading partners have promised to reach zero net emissions, mostly by 2040, in the case of China by 2060. And these are the very same people that take all our all the bulk of our coal and gas imports. So basically by 20 and 2050, there are going to be no coal and gas imports unless there's carbon capture and storage. And that's not going to happen because it's going to be too expensive. So they're going to be looking for alternative sources and they're going to be looking for alternative sources well before that time because they're not suddenly going to just flick the switch in 2050. They're going to be winding down over the next three decades. And that's the opportunity Australia has. There is demand out there. Australia has the resources to produce um, these renewable exports. We've got fantastic wind and solar resources. We've got enormous amounts of space and we've got the know-how. Um, it won't be that much different from shipping LNG. Um, it won't be that much different from shipping ammonia. Um, a lot of these exports will be in the form of renewable ammonia. And then we might have the added possibility of actually reigniting a manufacturing in industry in Australia using that surplus power. So we won't just be exporting green fuels, we'll be exporting green metals, which have been processed and refined in Australia, and also green products. 
It's such a seductive idea. I, I, I'm, I'm really hooked on it. Um, but it's not a new one as well. And even before um, Ross Garno's book of that of uh, Australia as a renewable uh, superpower, um, we had Beyond Zero Emissions publish a paper in 2015, which pointed to the same thing. Um, what, what historically have been the blockers stopping this plan from becoming realised and why may they not apply now? Yeah, well, look, kudos to um, Beyond Zero Emissions for actually identifying this so early in the piece. I mean, one of the first to actually do so. And, um, you know, also to the likes of Ross Garneau and um, some of the other people who have who've spoken of this over the last few years. But I guess the two main things is really just the technology costs have come down. Um, renewable hydrogen, for instance, is not yet cheap enough, but the path to it becoming cheap is, is clear now. So basically the cost of wind and solar has come down far enough and will continue to come down um, but now basically creates an opportunity so the third element of this equation electrolyzers which is the technology that actually cracks the water and splits it into two hydrogen and oxygen um, that will also come down and it's expected that um, it, the it, um, electrolyzer technology as it's deployed at scale will fall at the same speed as solar pv and um, battery storage and any other product which just finally reaches mass production. So you've got that, you've got the technology cost coming down, competition for what the existing um, commodities, and of course that demand. So people have talked about this in the past, about you know a far off opportunity, and we must do this because we've got the environmental responsibility of doing so. Well, that environmental responsibility is now absolutely crystal clear, but it's helped by the fact that it's actually got this economic advantage of actually making this switch to green. And um, that's basically, I think, what's changed the conversation. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's something about my filter bubble at the moment, but I, I can't look at my headlines on my phone without a, a new major renewable energy project. Uh, it seems like it's kicking off or, or planned. There's obviously the re Asian Renewable Energy Hub in the Pilbara. There are uh, planned ones like Star of the South in South Gippsland, which is great because it's using the in existing infrastructure for that had been used by brown coal uh, generating electricity in the Latrobe Valley. Is it... Is it already happening? Look, I think a lot of people, look, there are, look, I think there's actually more announcements than actually project developments. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it, 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 you do have to be careful about getting lured, in, lured into all these um, announcements. I mean, you've got a lot of projects out there which want to be developed and essentially a lot of people making publicity to try and push their project to the forefront because they're the ones that want to be able to lock in the infrastructure. They're the ones that want to sign the contract with off-takers and they're the ones that want to land the finance with finances and things like that. So it's kind of a bit like a beauty parade in a way but look there is so much going on but there's also a lot actually that is actually happening there are projects being written there is financing happening we are working these projects that we're talking about the star of the south the asia renewable energy hub sun cable in the northern territory which is 10 gigawatts of solar and, you know the world's biggest battery storage array they all take, they're incredibly hard thing. There's billions and billions and billions of dollars going to be invested in these. And you have to get all the ducks lined up before you can actually go ahead with these things. But, and, and they take work. But look, no different to, I think, if you, see, if you think about the energy industry, which was sort of built you know, 10, in the last 10 or 20 years, that took a lot of time to put in place all the contracts and all the different things. And the same will, will happen here with the, um, these massive renewable energy in, um, projects. But just looking at the number 
and all this, the, the quality and the size of the big players that are entering this industry, the BPs of the world, the Shells, the Siemens, um, you know, the Fortescues, um, it's actually really quite exciting. And um, you, don't, you can't predict which one will go ahead as planned, but they're all comp competing for the same place. And eventually, most of them will get going. It'll just be a bit of a struggle to work out which one's going to get to go first. And so uh, Ross Garner released his book to much fanfare um, on the back of the bushfires and then, then COVID happened, obviously. Now the federal government is discussing a gas-led recovery, uh, which is really just more of the same thing. I'm interested in what, what's the impact on how precarious our economy is post-COVID on the possibility of us realising this um, renewable energy superpower dream? It's really interesting, actually. Um, we at Renew Economy, um, the interest in our articles and our website absolutely surged during, COVID, uh, during the bushfires. You know, people were sort of you know, really worried about what they were seeing. Um, they were looking for answers. They are looking for solutions. And so naturally, they found our way to our, to our website and um, our traffic and our visits and our page views, you know, almost doubled in that period. And it was fantastic to see. Then COVID happened and it kind of dropped off completely because everyone just sort of got completely obsessed by this new threat and this new concern and trying to get their mind around that. And now it's kind of rebounded again. And I think to a certain extent, the governments are kind of, you know, doing the same thing. Um, you know, they're worried about the bushfires and all, all the focus is on COVID. Now they're just looking at post-COVID opportunities. Unfortunately, what we're also seeing is a lot of the ideology hasn't really changed. So we're seeing a lot of governments, particularly in Europe, um, with the new US administration and with Asia, just seeing these enormous opportunities happening with the post-COVID um, recovery plans. This is a chance to reset, to reappraise, and push forward with these new industries which can promise jobs and investments and hope for the future. Um, unfortunately, in our country, in Australia, our federal government just doesn't look at things that way at all. But, but the good news is that we have a lot of states and territories who actually do have more control over what they're doing and what can be done. And so they are seeing the opportunities here. So they're going ahead with their plans it's just that um, it's just happening on a bit of a haphazard and mis... Oh, no, no haphazard is not quite the right word because uh, that sounds as like it's completely disorganised. It's not, but it's just happening at state level. And so by necessity, that happens at different speeds and different cadences and things like that. It would be much better if we had vision from the federal government because it'd become more coordinated. It might be cheaper and quicker um, and with a bit more focus. But look... In the absence of that, the states are moving forward, and I'm not too sure whether we're actually going to see this particular federal government change its spots, but um, one can live in hope. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so there's a there's a bit of a philosophical question that that you you hear in the in the climate movement, which is the idea of a renewable energy superpower just continuing, just being a, con, a continuation of our economy's addiction to growth, uh, just along a slightly less destructive path. Where 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 do you stand on that? Yeah, look, we write mostly about um, renewables and the creation of new technologies and new projects, but you're absolutely right. I mean, sort of, we've got to think about this addiction to growth um, and just sort of building things over and over just, just, just for the sake of it. 
It's really interesting that in most of the major reports, whether they be from the International Energy Agency um, or Climate Works in Australia or many others, they, they point out that the focus or much of the focus has to be, if we're going to reach these 1.5 degree targets, which we must do, we, we've got to try and do better than that. But if we reach those targets, energy efficiency has got to be, play a big role in that. And that is learning how to use appliances and other things smarter. So not only do we actually change the energy system from coal and fossil fuels to renewables, but we actually use less per capita and we become much more efficient. I mean, population will grow, um, you know, demand for things will grow, but we just need to be smarter about the way we're doing things. Now, the shift to electric with cars is really smart because they're so much more efficient than fossil fuel engines. Fossil fuel engines run at about 20% efficiency. So much energy is wasted in heat and stuff like that from the engine. It's just ridiculous. Electric cars are about 90% efficient. That's really good. So we've got, to, we've got to become more efficient. This idea about sort of reassessing growth, well, that's not going to happen. Well, it should happen, but it's not going to happen until we actually get this rethink about this sort of those definitions of economic growth. And at the moment, we've got this really horrible one, this clunky one called GDP, where even a natural disaster or something going completely wrong is measured as a boost to the economy, where in fact it's actually, if you measure it by any other means, you know, it's a distraction because, you know, there's been destruction, things have to be rebuilt and stuff like that. But it's just this really bad way of measuring economic growth. You've got to find a smarter way of doing that. But in the meantime, we can actually move to be much smarter about the way we use appliances, um, the efficiency of the tools that we're using, and the shift to electric is actually going to help that quite a lot just in that transition itself. But there's other things that we can do to be smarter about the way we use energy and use other, other commodities and resources. Fantastic. And, and finally, I'm really interested in your um, expert perspective on what, what do you foresee uh, as the future uh, for Australia in 2021 um, with regards to renewables? Look, I think that despite everything, it'll go forward simply because um, in Australia, we actually have no choice. We've got an aging fleet of coal and gas generators. Um, they've got to be replaced. The cheapest and most reliable option as found in all these reports from the Australian Energy, Manage um, Australian Energy Market Operator, from the CSIRO, from any number of different experts, is that the best option, the smartest option, is wind and solar backed up by various forms of storage, batteries and pumped hydro and the like. And I just can't see that being derailed. It may not happen as quickly as we want. It may not happen as efficient as we want. And there may be lots of wailing and gnashing of teeth from some conservatives and the incumbents and things like that, but it'll happen. And I think allowed to happen and with a proper plan in place, it could happen really, really quickly. So even a emo whose job it is to keep the lights on have a scenario and they've mapped out this path to 94% renewables by 2040. Now, some people think that we could do it quicker, and we probably can, and we probably will. But right now, even getting beyond 50% renewable is a big thing for many people to get their mind over. And if you go back 10 years, I mean, you talk about 10 or 20% renewables, and people go, oh, that's impossible. You can't do that. You know, it won't work. The lights will go out. But now we're talking about 100% renewables. But more than that, we're talking with these green hydrogen things. We're talking 200%, 300%, 400% renewables. And I actually think that everything is going to happen quicker than we thought possible, but I'm sure there's going to be some hurdles and frustrations along the way. 
Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. I think that's that's bang on. So um, thank you so much for, for taking the time, Giles. And I'll, um, I'll, I urge all our listeners to go to um, reneweconomy.com.au and I'll put that the link for that in the show notes because it's, um, it's my first point of call whenever I'm looking up something to do with uh, renewable technologies. Um, and um, oh, either that or The Guardian, but you also write for The Guardian as well, Giles. So thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, no, I don't write for The Guardian so much anyway, but look, it's either that or um, we've also got an electric vehicle website called thedriven.io, um, thedriven.io. It's just focused on electric vehicles, and that's actually proving really popular. There's so much interest out there in electric vehicles, which is really exciting, and I just think it's testimony that um, electric cars, probably not as cheap as they need to be for our mass market adoption, but gee, there's a lot of people out there who are really interested in them, who are probably thinking, my next car is going to be electric and I'm just going to wait for the one that I want that suits my lifestyle and that I can afford. And that's pretty exciting too. Awesome. Yeah, we'll pop those in the show notes as well. Thanks a lot, Giles. No worries. Thanks for having me. All right. See ya. Hi, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Australia has had a long recent history of intransigence with regards to climate legislation. Despite being well over a decade ago, I think we can all remember Rudd's carbon pollution reduction scheme and the subsequent News Corp and coal lobbyist smackdown of what came to be known infamously as the carbon tax. This eventually cost Rudd his prime ministership. It also paved the way for a toxic atmosphere with regards to federal action right up to Turnbull's national energy guarantee and even costing Labor in the most recent federal election, losing big in North Queensland. Perhaps today, after the bushfires, though, we live in a different Australia. One person who has not been afraid to wade through this toxic swamp is one Zali Stegall, the ex-Olympian skier who took on Tony Abbott in the seat of Warringah and won. On November 9th, Zali introduced her much-anticipated climate change bill to the Australian Parliament. The bill set the target of net zero emissions by 2050. Zali, thank you so much for making the time. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, Can we just start off by uh, talking about, uh, could you explain the climate change bill and why it is necessary to introduce that right now? Yeah, sure. Uh, Well, look, I obviously came into politics with a platform of wanting to put forward a sensible solution. I think Australians, and I know I certainly did, but many people have written to me, were really tired of the toxic debate around taking action on climate change and also feeling that it was used as a political football for, you know, partisanship games, but not really looking at the long-term Uh, health and security and safety of Australians. So after the election, I looked to other countries and other jurisdictions for where have they managed to do, you know, do better than Australia, not end up in such a divisive argument. Uh, And the UK stands out. So the UK passed the Climate Change Act in 2008, and it is a legislation that was passed with bipartisan support. It um, survived 10 years of Brexit politics and uh, their revolving doors of prime ministers. Um, And it has now really led the UK in a very strong emission reduction Uh, trajectory um, and has really enabled them to develop a lot of manufacturing and different um, industries because it's provided them with long-term policy certainty. So I look at that model and I think, right, 
I think this is absolutely what we need in Australia. So I modelled on that legislation. The Climate Change Bill introduces uh, that we pass into law our long-term goal of net zero by 2050. Now, I know there are many who feel we should get there sooner than that, and I hold hope that we will, but we need to at least put in place a, a, a legal framework to say... Um, when we absolutely need to achieve net zero by. Um, and, and by locking that into law, you give long-term policy certainty. You take the partisan politics out of climate change um, and, you, and you really sort of silence and deny voices who will argue that we don't even have to do anything on emission reduction. Um, so it's a really important uh, first step is to lock into law net zero by 2050. And then how you get there, which is five-year emission reduction budgets. Now, what each of those budgets do is they gradually build you up to that net zero. And those budgets are uh, developed by, obviously, the government of the day. Um, they uh, And the advice of an independent climate change commission who, looking at all the sectors, where the level of emissions are at, which sectors can decarbonise faster than others, and what level of ambition can we, in a fiscally responsible way, develop and gradually uh, in a compound interest kind of way, we can gradually keep increasing those five-year emission reduction uh, budgets to the point that they get more and more ambitious. So that's the technical aspect of how the bills, uh, the Climate Change Act delivers the long-term emission reduction. Um, and then it obviously also addresses that we need proper risk assessment uh, from of all our sectors, you know, from a point of view of health, uh, environment, uh, water and food safety, uh, extreme weather events, but also employment and, you know, challenges certain communities are going to face. Uh, and it legislates that there should be um, uh, resilience and adaptation planning in respect to all those risks as they get identified. So they're the, the key aspects of the bill. Um, like you, you know, sort of the naysayers will argue, well, what's our 2030 goal? Or, um, you know, is it tech? It's, you know, the, the liberals will always say, is it, you know, we're for technology, not taxes. The irony is none of that is true about this bill. The bill is, um, it is technology agnostic. So it's not setting, it is not forcing anyone energy policy. It's not an energy policy legislation. It is a long-term safety policy, really, in relation to climate. Uh, it is up to the government of the day to implement policies, whether it be technologies or taxes mm -hmm. or, um, uh, or whatever policy response, but it must add up to lowering emissions. So it's really bringing the argument back to balancing that budget matters, um, and we can't just have uh, you know, smoke screens and accounting tricks about where we're actually heading. Definitely, definitely. And, and how has the reception been uh, inside and outside of Parliament? Oh, look, fantastic. So obviously there is, you know, pretty much every sector in Australian society has been calling out for this, for take the party politics out of it and put in place a long-term plan. So I've had a, we've had a huge amount of support from the private sector, whether it be um, AMA, uh, BCA, um, industry groups, uh, from and some, some of the trade unions, like the electrical trade union, who all acknowledge these are the challenges 
we actually need to plan for. Um, you know, the MPs that have high level of employment in their community from fossil fuel um, industries, they're not doing their, um, their constituents a service by ignoring that this is a problem that needs to be planned for and addressed. Um, and so the... <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the support has been good. Um, there obviously needs to continue being that pressure applied. We know uh, the Prime Minister and the Coalition Government um, are fairly, you know, reluctant or slow to um, maybe step up and adapt their policy. Uh, and so that call has to come unanimously from, I think, all of society and private sector. What we do know is over 70% of our export trade is now with countries that are all committed to net zero by 2050. So we are absolutely the outliers and a real risk that our exports will face border carbon tariffs because we are not a country that has sufficient policy to lower our emissions. Yes, yes, that's that's a very good point. Um, and, and I'm interested in our, our domestic situation and sort of addressing some of the, the blockers to this bill that I'm sure that almost anyone listening to the show will, will agree is a great idea. Are you afraid of the power that News Corp and sort of Sky News wields in Australia as, as, as sort of um, a PR campaign against the, the bill passing? I look sure. <laughs> I don't think I would be an MP that's uh, particularly, you know, favoured in those circles. Um, they have had significant influences, no doubt about it, on Australian political um, outcomes and landscapes. And I have a real issue with their lack of uh, factual basis of the kind of reporting. They're really, they're an opinion style journalism. They are not factual based journalism. Um, and I think that's a real distinction that needs to be made. Um, but look, I think with the advent of more and more social media, people have access to information. And so just as you have the rise of fake news, you also have the rise uh, of uh, information sources like you for people to actually know where to find the information. And what we've also seen is you know, 2020 with the bushfires, um, the health impacts and the environmental impact of that. Um, we know, everyone knows that climate impacts are happening now. This is not a problem for the future. These are very real challenges that we have now that need to be addressed. So I think that um, approach by uh, that area of the media of put your head in the sand and pretend it's not happening or disseminate false facts, um, I think is less and less uh, powerful. You know, I, I do think our younger generations are way more savvy and attuned to getting correct information. Great, great. Yeah, I, I, I hope you're right. Um, and looking at sort of the, I guess, the, the ambient toxicity surrounding climate action um, at a federal level, do you, are you worried that the two major parties are sort of um, rusted on and stuck to, to policies that, that are not welcoming to, um, to your bill? Well, look, uh, obviously I've had meetings with both sides in relation to the bill um, and try, you know, really trying to take that partisan politic and that wedge politics out of it and trying to bring everyone around the table to come up with a long-term solution that actually works for everyone. It works for communities that need certainty about where their future and employment opportunities are going to be, that it works for, you know, the environment, that it works from a health point of view, and it works for business and investment. 
Um, so that's why when the bills were introduced, um, I requested they be referred to uh, committee, so the Environment and Energy Committees, to, and then to hold an inquiry. Now, so, and, and I should say to listeners, if you want to go uh, to www.climateactnow.com.au, there'll be information there about how to make a submission to the inquiry. So it's really important, that process, an inquiry process uh, through the Environment and Energy Committee, that is a bipartisan committee, then both parties represented. Um, it's an opportunity to hear from the private sector and business and investment about why this is important, that we stop having political games around our future um, and actually get on with putting something in place. So in principle, Labor agrees with this bill. And I should note, this legislation has been adopted in various forms in both uh, in many in conservative countries like the UK, but it's also legislation that's passed by state labour governments, for example. So, and we have all states and territory governments committed to net zero by 2050, both coalition and labour. So, this is not ideologically uh, a hard thing to do um, and should really be something that the government and the opposition engages with. So, in principle, opposition is in agreement with the principles of the bill. Um, they basically have held back from engaging on exactly what amendments or changes they would make on the basis of, well, until the government puts it up or agrees to debate it, we don't need to do that. I think that's a little bit disingenuous and I think they have their own issues. Um, you have to be, and that's where I think the people, Australian people are really frustrated um, that it, the government of the coalition who... Um, are prepared to wreck the joint. You know, they will hold the rest of Australia to ransom over the fact that they just don't accept the science and the need to decarbonise and deal with climate change. My argument is, you know, look, if they want to hold that view, that's fine, but they don't have the right to hold up 80% of Australia um, and all other MPs. That Their vote only counts for one in, in the coalition uh, or in government. They should not outweigh the vote of other members. So if the government's unable to deal with this from a party room point of view, my argument is make it a conscience vote, which is a free vote. So every MP can be, um, doesn't have to follow party lines and actually they all acknowledge their position in relation to net zero by 2050. Right, great, great answer. Um, so we, we, just to sort of get into the bill a little bit, um, we, we have, we already have an Australia Renewable Energy Agency, we have the Climate Change Authority, and we have renewable energy targets. Why do we need an independent climate change commission, as the bill suggests? Uh, yeah, look, the problem is, well, ARENA is very much looking at the investment into new technologies, which is very important, but ARENA does not do any of the other um, aspects, which is looking at the rate of emission reduction or identifying risks and adaptation and resilience planning. So there's obviously a lot more that I'm proposing the Independent Climate Change Commission needs to address. Um, and that's really set out in the skills that I said I propose be around the table. And this is really important. We need people with industrial relations experience with um, you know, an Indigenous, um, we need to have a minimum of one Indigenous voice on that commission uh, so that we can learn from traditional owners. Um, we need to have business expertise and science 
scientific expertise. We need all those skills around the table, which we don't have at the moment when it comes to the Climate Change Authority. The difficulty is also the Climate Change Authority was attached to the legislation that Labor passed that was subsequently repealed by the coalition under my predecessor. Mm. So uh, I, I did investigate whether we empower the Climate Change Authority to have more, more scope or do we start with a whole new uh, body? And the advice I got legally was it was cleaner to start mm. with a whole new body to make sure it's sufficient. I think it's really important we have that independent advice and that we have that independent, independent reporting for the public to know how we're tracking. So currently the Climate Change Authority only prepares a report at the request of the minister. So, for example, Minister Taylor doesn't want it to be too publicised that we're not really reducing our emissions. Um, he can really delay or stop the Climate Change Authority from being affected in that way. And I think that's a real problem. The Australian people should know, should be informed about how the government is tracking. We need that separation uh, when it comes to the government of the day, how it's delivering, um, with the actual reporting of our current status. So um, from my point of view, the Climate Change Commission is really important. It is absolutely modelled on a very similar commission that's been in effect in the UK, bipartisan, has support from both sides of politics and has been really effective. So again, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel here. I'm actually trying to bring into Australian politics a model that has been shown to work in other jurisdictions. Right, right. Well, well, that's great. Um, and just to finish up, um, what happens to the bill from here on in now you've um, introduced it? Because you're obviously a, you're a trained lawyer. You'd be uh, right up on, on, on this whole process. Uh, yeah, look, I think, again, it's really important for this to be bipartisan, what we've seen with previous attempts at policy around climate change and emission reduction is if you don't have a collaborative, you know, broad acceptance from both sides of politics, it doesn't work and it gets repealed and undermined. And that, you know, this is a long-term problem. We, it's now, but it's for the next 20 to 30 years. We need, you know, systematic changes to happen. Now, for that to be possible, you need both sides of politics pulling in the same direction. I, um, I compare climate change policy over the long term. It's a health and safety issue, the same as, for example, we have a defence force. Now, neither coalition or Labor argue that we need a long-term defence strategy for Australia. So we should also not have an argument that we need a long-term uh, defence strategy for, to, in respect to climate change. So um, it's really important that... Uh, it is a collaborative process that we hear all the different views and opinion. Um, obviously, not everyone, uh, you know, some groups like the Greens would like more in this bill. But we can't let perfect be the enemy of good. We need to find our common ground when it comes to climate change policy and start building consensus instead of having both sides of politics in a standoff pretty much every three years when it comes to elections um, and it becomes a weaponized, you know, different, they have different targets, different ways of achieving them, that you lose accountability on whether they're actually achieving them or not. Um, and I think no one wins out of that situation. So 
Um, the bill has gone to committee for inquiry. The inquiry, it's open until the 27th of November to make written submissions. There will then be public hearing days, um, and then there will be recommendations and a report to parliament. At that point, I will be pushing for the debate to occur on the bill and a vote, obviously. Fantastic, Zali, and thank you so much for um, for taking the time out. And I'll um, I'll put that www.climateactnow.com.au in the uh, in the show notes. And I'll really uh, urge all our listeners to to go to that and let um, let their is there a, a form to let their MP know. Um, Yes, so look, the website is there to really, and I really encourage everyone to go and check out, we have an open counter where you can see um, in your electorate, your area, what the level of support is. And so I would hope some regions could get a bit competitive with one another about, you know, showing their engagement with the issue and trying to have a higher level of sign-ups in other areas. Um, But also there are um, there are tools to download to facilitate writing an email to your local MP um, and also how to engage with your local community to spread the word and obviously sharing on social media. Um, and then there is also the links to how to make a submission to uh, the Environment and Energy Committee inquiry, which is really important. So, uh, you know, what the, a submission needs to obviously address the elements of the bill, what, you know, why you feel that it's an important aspect um, and, and, and what are the issues you use. Fantastic, Zali. Thank you so much. Thank you especially for being, um, being a leader at, at this time on, on, on an issue that um, so many other, so many other um, of our politicians refuse to touch. So thank you. Yeah. Well, that's okay. And happy to be back in touch when we've got a uh, inquiry process. Awesome. And a report. I look forward to it. 3CR. Here to stay. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for. And this will be my last show of 2020. Please join Viv next week. I would like to thank our guests, Giles Parkinson, David Barnan, and of course, Sally Stegall. Thanks to everyone at 3CR and to Viv, Salut Babette, and thank you most of all to you listeners this year. Finally, if you're looking to listen to another climate podcast, you can check out ICLEI's Climate Communicator. They're a group that works on communicating about the climate. They have a podcast called Talking in This Climate, and I'll include the link in the show notes. You have been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show. I'm Kurt Johnson, and this is 3CR. Thank <music> you.